Hello and welcome to the EDH Fretcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, if he was a professor at Strixhaven, he'd be called Professor Oak. That's Matt Morgan. So Bill Gates and Arnold Schwarzenegger met at a party once. Bill Gates asked him, have you upgraded to Windows 10 yet? And the governor said, I still love Vista, baby. <laughs> That's one of the... I, I love your ability to find the jokes that are the best and the worst. That's so terrific. This one borders on the worst. It'll be back, though. It'll be back. Dang it. That's good. The double punch. Love it. Next, if he was a professor at Strixhaven, he'd be called Professor, why did you assign so much homework? That's Dana Roach. Well, you're talking about the professors, Joey. And at this point, we've seen most of the stuff from Strixhaven. Um, and I'm kind of not into it so far. I, I buy Liliana as Professor Onyx, but I felt like uh, Kiora as Professor Ariel and Jace as Professor Sheldon seemed like super lazy references. <laughs> I love your ability to project these jokes weeks into the future because we don't even know what Strixhaven is going to look like by the time oh, this comes out. So well done with that in the future jokes, Dana. We'll see how it works out for you. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all that data a little more context. Dana, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? We we are talking about the enduring popularity of sets. So like how they, uh, how popular they are over a longer span than what we looked at previously. Yeah, we did an episode a little while back, episode 153, about the sets that had the biggest impact as soon as they released. But in this episode, we want to go a little bit further. Were any sets decreasing in popularity when we expanded to a six-month or a 12-month window? Did any sets get more popular over time? That is what we're going to do. Now, before we get to that main topic, we are, of course, going to pause real quick to give a huge thank you to the Command Zone. They are the folks who handle the post-production work on our podcast here, making it look as cool as it does. And we want to pause and give a huge thank you to our sponsors for the show, too. The EDH Redcast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. Card Kingdom has the deepest buy list online and a deep inventory as well. If you want to get rid of any of those cool old frame Time Spiral Remastered cards you cracked, they'll take them. And if you want to buy any ones you didn't crack, they will have them, too. Uh, similarly, our other sponsor, TCG Player, has everything you would want as well. Um, even that old frame foil beast within I just purchased tonight. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and pick the link below. Uh, doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you would prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH Reccast. We have Patreon tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to join our Discord community or you want to join a certain tier where we're going to send out swag to you every few months. Um, we just sent our first round out to our patrons. You can do this all at patreon.com slash EDH Reccast. We even have a very special tier where we thank a certain listener just for joining our Patreon. And this week, we're going to give a very healthy shout out to Carl Choi. So Carl, thank you so much for being a patron. We definitely appreciate all the support. Yeah, Carl, thank you so much. That's awesome. All right, fellas, now we're going to get into that main topic. And once again, we are discussing the sets that had the most enduring popularity over time. Once again, we talked about the sets that had the biggest impact on episode 153, those really big surges of popularity right out the gate. But now we want to expand that time window and see, did that popularity maintain itself over the course of years? Did sets get more popular or maybe 
less popular? Were there any changes? It should be a whole lot of fun to get into. This time, though, we do have to acknowledge that we're making a pretty significant change to the way that we are uh, going to be drawing this particular data compared to that last episode, 153. In that episode, we counted sets that, uh, the, the reprints in a set. Like if a set contained the card Cultivate, for instance, even though that card originally came from a set that happened way long ago, any deck that included a Cultivate would ping as an inclusion and count towards that new set's number. And we did this to measure the importance of different reprints, because, you know, a set like Jumpstart has very few original cards, but it has amazing reprints in it. So we wanted to count those in that episode to measure the importance, the impact of some of those different reprints for those sets. Uh, yeah, but that, that metric also means that cards like Soul Ring and Arcane Signet um, and tons of other staples, frankly, uh, they just dominate the data because they are played in so many decks. So if we want to try to measure the staying power of a set over a long period of time, those cards with very inflated numbers just had to come out so we could actually see data rise or fall. Yeah, uh, the precons were super, super big in the numbers because they contain soul rings and arcane signets and command towers and probably terramorphic expanses. And that ultra, it just gets, um, it, as you said, it dominates those data points. Yeah, so so this time around, we are going to change things up just a little bit. Um, we're only going to ca count cards that were original in any given set. So Oracle of Moldia, for example, that was a great reprint in Jumpstart. Um, it's not going to count towards Jumpstart's numbers because that technically was a reprint for the set. Um we you know we'll count all the original cards in the set, but we're not going to be including any reprints to kind of pump up numbers for any of those types of sets. Indeed. And also real quick, let's kind of recap the mechanics of how this is going to work. For each set release, what we did was count the total number of decks that were built or updated within our database after the one month period or the three month period or the six month period or the 12 year period, any of those, we counted the total number of decks that were built after that set came out and then compared that against the total number of decks that were built that include cards from that set to kind of get a percentage of how much was the impact from that set. How many decks were built or updated overall around that time that include cards that were originally printed from whatever newest set was just released. Yeah, so for instance, in the first month after Theros Beyond Death was released, uh, how many decks were built that included a card from that set compared to how many decks were built at that time overall. Then we did the same thing, spending that time window out to three months, then six months, then nine, then a year. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, also a reminder here is probably pretty important. We are talking about deck inclusions, not total cards. You know, if a card, uh, if, if a deck contains like 56 cards just from Ikoria, that still only counts as one deck point here. So that's sort of a good measure for us to keep in mind, I think. And then due to us only counting original cards, any sets that are purely reprints, we're not going to talk about. Those obviously are getting included in a pretty significant clip because everything is a reprint. So those we're not going to talk about. So Double Masters, I'm sorry. I did appreciate <laughs> you being a set, um, but we're not going to talk about those numbers here. Yeah, a very good point too. All right, let's get to it. We're going to talk about this different enduring popularity in three different categories. First up, we're going to talk about sets that maintained the same amount of popularity. Then we're going to talk about sets that experienced an uptick in popularity over time. And then finally, we're going to finish up with sets that reduced in popularity when we measured them on a longer time window. Should be really interesting. Let's get to the sets that stayed the same in popularity. These sets, original cards just didn't experience 
experienced significant gains in popularity over time. As a quick heads up for the section, we are also going to count a couple of sets that do have some slight marginal uptick in popularity, but it is just not super significant. It's too small of an increase to really count as like moving the needle. So you might notice a couple of numbers that seem like they're going up, but it is very, very small compared to stuff that we'll get to a little bit later. Let's get to some of these sets now. We're going to start off with Commander 2019. So first things first, Commander 2019 is the first set we're going to look at here. Um, it's a set known for cards like Kirik, Alapalani, and especially Dockside Extortionist, which is <laughs> just everywhere as far as I can tell. It, and it is, and also I think that Dockside Extortionist, when we look at the numbers, might be one of the only things that Commander 2019 has going for it in terms of original card impact. When we look at the one-month window just for Commander 2019, um, things don't look as nice as they did when we measured this back on the episode 153 when we included reprints, because the Commander Precons were super good, but here it's a lot less. We're not going to go through every single one of the numbers, because they're there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of decks going in here. We'll just go straight to the percentages. If you are watching on the YouTube, you will see all of the numbers here. But um, yeah, after the first month of Commander 2019's existence, only 27% of decks at the time included an original card from Commander 2019. Dockside Extortionist is pretty popular, and I feel like it might be carrying a lot of that weight. How did it fare when we expanded the time window, though? So when we expand out to three months, um, that percentage drops slightly it drops about two percent we're going on to 25.5 so people seemed to pull back a little bit from a set that already didn't seem that popular and it did get a little bit less so after that first quarter yeah after the, those first three months it really dipped it did start to pick back up after about six months or so and and really kind of worked its way back up to the original percentage you know seeing about 20 27 percent of decks again um but it's really not that much variance it's two percent or so which isn't a lot that could be a rounding error almost mm -hmm. so i think T commander 2019 we've really seen all that we're going to see from it uh, we know it's dockside extortionist we know it's kirik son of yagmoth two extremely powerful cards but it seems like not a lot other than that um as relevance by the pretty steady numbers. Yeah, the same, it's the same almost exactly where it was the first month as it is a year later, both at 27%. So definitely maintained a lot of steady popularity there, but also kind of low in retrospect too. Um, oh man, I, I almost don't want us to get to this next one though, because this one feels like a real heartbreaker. The next set on our list is Jumpstart. And this one, of course, Jumpstart has Tiny Bones and Bruvac and Branching Evolution is a really, really good enchantment that doubles up your counters like i really love what this set had but the reality is that it, most of this set was reprints so when we're just measuring original cards it looks a little sad because if we're just looking at its original cards within its first month only nine percent of decks that were built at that time contained an original card from jumpstart and if we expand that a little bit out like six months it was only like 10 percent and we don't have a full year's worth of data but even after nine months it's still kind of only at 10 percent jumpstart i'm really sad but your original cards just didn't move as much of a mark as we would have wanted to your reprints were really good though well jumpstart we talked about in our 2020 year that was review episode just jumpstart never had a chance to really get into the hands of players i think if if there were more people and if people were playing 
in local game stores, this number would be significantly higher. Just mm-hmm. Jumpstart was a victim of everything that was going on in 2020. So just people never got a chance to play it as it was intended. Uh, just there's not a lot in circulation. So that's the it's not because the new cards aren't great. Um, I think they're probably some of the best of last year, but they're just not out in the wild. Yeah, that, that's a good a good point. Like it's very severely handicapped by two factors. It's a set designed to be played with people that came out in a year when you can't play with people. And it was a set that you just couldn't get a hold of even if you wanted to buy packs to crack. It was just uh-huh. tough to find. So these numbers are definitely warped by basically reality. Yeah, absolutely. Like my bro plays Bruvac. We call it Brovac. But that card is ridiculously expensive. That was like a birthday gift for him to be even able to get that commander in the first place. So, oh, there's so many sad restrictions on Jumpstart. I'm really sad about it. Let's get, can, can we get a vigil for Jumpstart or like, can we get more Jumpstart, please, Watsy? That would be even better. That'd be just so, so cool. All right, let's move on to our next set. In this case, we are going to be talking about a couple of sets that we really don't have a lot of data for just yet. They are very, very recent, but we haven't seen a huge amount of percentage movement just yet from them. But also take that with a grain of salt that there hasn't been enough time to really measure a lot of movement. Let's talk about Kaldheim. Yeah, Kaldheim, you know, a set well known for cards like Turgrid, which we've talked about here before, Asika and Orvar come to mind, as well as a whole, um, or, or finishing off a cycle of those MDFC lands. Um, one month in, we are looking at just shy of 50% of set penetration. So half the decks were, were showing at least one card from Kaldheim. That's pretty impressive, I think. Mm-hmm. And once, like, we've only got three more months of data, but did it go up at all? I mean, I know what category we're talking in, though, so I guess it didn't really move too much. Yeah, after the three-month mark, we did see um, an, an increase, but it's not anything huge. It's 3%, so it's a bump, but it's also kind of within that margin of error as well. It doesn't take many cards to to see an increase by three overall. Um, one thing I think is interesting here, looking at Kaldheim, um, particularly say compared to Commander 2019, um, there's cards here, I think, that that wound up universally going in a bunch of decks. Things like the Prismatic Bridge in five-color decks probably just got added in you know, most five-color decks. And it's also a very affordable card compared to Dockside Extortionist, for example, which could go in any red deck, but it's also relatively expensive because it was so in demand. The in-demand cards from Kaldheim being a standard set were much easier to get at an affordable price to put into your deck. Well, and it being a standard legal set where people are, are, you know, theoretically drafting this set. There are just a lot more packs of these going around. Like you can get these at Walmart, at Target, at your local game store. You can get these fairly easily as opposed to, you know, if you're getting a a Commander 2019 pack to get the Dockside Extortionist, you have to get the whole pre-constructed deck. So just the price point to get packs and and Kaldheim cards in the wild, the the supply is significantly higher. Now, Matt, looking at just the small movement that we've seen here, which could be rounding error, could maybe not, do you think that this has the potential to grow even further beyond just the 52% that we're seeing for Kaldheim? Do you think it might maintain there? What are you feeling? I certainly think so. Once people can continue opening these packs, um, drafting the set, doing whatever, uh, the, the the pathway lands by themselves, I think, are going to mm. do a decent amount of heavy lifting. They're just a very, very efficient and very affordable uh, piece of mana fix 
guessing that, you know, it's coming in a standard set. So those alone, I think a lot of these numbers probably are going to get carried by the quality of the, the rare land cycles in the sets. All right. I, I would guess, generally speaking, the trend is probably for people to see a card that they didn't put in their deck um, in someone else's deck and see, oh, that is actually quite good. I'm going to try that versus someone seeing a card in their own deck and saying, yeah, it's not as good as I thought. I would guess, generally speaking, that happens more often where you just see something that you didn't grab initially and think to yourself, I want to play that now. Yeah, the call time definitely strikes me as one of those sets where there's still a lot for us to dig through to mm -hmm. find those hidden gems that could make the popularity maybe spike a couple more months or even a year farther down the line. And I also think that that applies to the next set that we can touch on here briefly. It hasn't experienced a huge movement yet. It's Commander Legends, which famously has commanders like Obeka or Sakashima, I think is the most popular partner right now. It has those battle bond lands finished up this other part of the cycle. Lovely on that. Really, really happy to see those. Within the first month of Commander Legends existence, when we're just counting its original cards, not the reprints, about 59% of decks built around that time are including cards that came from Commander Legends. And when we expanded that out to the three-month period, it's only about 61%, so not a whole bunch of movement. Could be the kind of thing that goes back down or that continues to climb up just slowly. How are we feeling about Commander Legends? I absolutely love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think <laughs> if you were designing a set to spike these particular stats... It would be this one. It has everything you want to put cards into decks. It has a ton of commanders, a bunch of which are very interesting. It has a new land cycle that people wanted, and it has a bunch of bomb cards that are single color, so they're easy to put in a bunch of decks, things like Jessica's Will or Hellbreacher, or Jewel Lotus, which is colorless, which is even easier. So, like, mathematically speaking, it hits every checkbox you would want to at least get one card in a whole bunch of different decks. Yeah, I, the only thing that I imagine that's going to make this higher is just the set was competing with itself as far yeah. as just all the things that were going on. So it was really easy to miss a lot of things. A lot of folks missed Jessica's Will because... There was just so much else going on in the set. You know, they glanced over it and then eventually the card caught on. So the more time we have with Commander Legends, in theory at least, it'll just keep getting more and more exposure. The numbers will go up and up. It's hard to imagine a set that's already included in 61% of decks needing more play, but I think that's exactly what we're going to see with Commander Legends. I, I really hope that you guys are both right on this one. I have a personal fear that since Commander Legends was followed up so immediately by a set that is also packed to the gills like Call Time was, I worry that maybe Commander Legends won't get that opportunity to breathe because it is being covered up by so many subsequent sets. So I worry that maybe this could actually end up staying the same. I, is that just me, though? It seems like it might just be me. I think with the partners being so prolific in Commander Legends, that opens up a lot of doors and just there, there's so much going on that eventually people are going to start circling back to different cards. I, I do think that there's going to be some amount of just Commander Legends gets drowned out by Time Spot Remastered, by Strixhaven, by Kaldheim, all these new sets that are coming immediately after. But the set is so good. I, I think that just the, the numbers are going to continue to rise. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm very reassured to, to hear that. So thank I, you. Just the, the, the sheer quality of the set. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> your, your fears, Joey, while valid, um, 
I think that we can put them to rest eventually. Cool, cool. All right, so we're done talking about the sets that stayed the same over the duration of their existence. And again, some of those we didn't have completely a full year's worth of data for, but those are the ones we noticed where there hasn't been too much uptick in terms of their popularity. So now how about we move to those sets that did experience a significant increase in popularity as we increased the time window for more decks to be added to the database? Were those sets forgotten? No, these ones definitely went up in popularity. Their cards just got into even more and more decks. We're going to start off in this section with the set Zendikar Rising, which of course is famous for having those pathway lands, things like Omnath, which is four colors and was so good that it broke the standards. We had Feed the Swarm. Zendikar Rising did a whole lot of stuff for us. Where was it? And with the data that we do have for the set, Dana, what are we seeing in terms of its growth in popularity over time? So, so we saw it start off at 46%. Um, which is, again, you know, a couple percentage points lower than we saw from Kaldheim. Um, but then it jumped up, and then it jumped up again. We went from 46 to 53 to 57 in the first six months. Woo! So over the course of a half a year, that was an 11% increase in, in penetration for Zendikar Rising. Um, this one very much got more popular as time passed. Yeah, it's, it's catching up with Commander Legends. Uh, there was just a lot of versatility. There weren't any like absolute haymakers and just you, you got to have these in every single deck. But there's just so many good role players. The uh, the dual faced cards like uh, Balagate Recovery that you can play as a tapped land. Those just that whole subsection of cards they really gave a lot of flexibility, so it's it's really hard not to just add those as the 99th, the 100th card into any given deck because there's so much versatility to a lot of the cards in the set. I think it is also important for us to note that like the max penetration for cards showing up in decks that are those MDFCs, a lot of talk happened when Zendikar Rising came out about like these go into every single deck. And I think the numbers that we're seeing here, while impressive, are also demonstrating that it's not true that every deck needs to contain some of those types Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, just because they can doesn't mean they should. And it also doesn't mean that they are. Yes. Right. Although I wonder if some of that isn't people not running four or five of them, but instead they've figured out what the role is for one of them in their deck. So they've gotten more comfortable having played a little bit with, with one in a deck that worked and have added one to multiple other decks as they've kind of gotten more familiar with how to build around them. That makes sense to me. I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, let's move from Zendikar Rising to Core Set 2021. We've only got about nine months worth of data here, but it is pretty interesting data that we're seeing as it grew in popularity over time. Core Set 2021 brought us such hits as Fiery Emancipation, Dana's favorite card ever that he runs despite <laughs> thinking that it's only fine, I guess. it's Your relationship with that card is amazing, man. Uh, it's also got stuff like Rin and Sari, which... Matt, you gotta love the cat dog. Gotta love the cat dog. The cat dog, the dog cat, the hybrid, whatever it is. Oh, uh, it's so good. Uh, so yeah, a whole bunch of, uh, I, I think we at the time called this like one of the most like awesome core sets that will inevitably be underrated. And I hope that the data kind of demonstrates that it is getting a lot more love as time goes on. Within its first month, we saw like 41% popularity, but Matt, where did it go after we got a bit more data, a bit more time window? Well, this has a slow and steady increase of of you know, a rise in, in play. Uh, it went from 41% to 44, 47. And, you know, at, at the nine month window that we're looking at, you know, it's almost at 49%. So it's just been slowly rising up a few percentage points every quarter. Um, it's actually kind of impressive that like people haven't forgotten about a core set, which I can't remember the last time people forgot about the core set 20 minutes after the set was done. <laughs> 
it, that definitely seemed to be the, the tempo for corsets. It's just like, ah, oh, it's a corset, whatever, it's forgettable. But this one had some bangers. Yeah, it, it definitely did. Again, to, to repeat, Fire Emancipation is an absolute bomb. Um, <laughs> Karuk's Uprising mm. is a really good role-playing card that can go into a ton of decks. I've seen Teferi's Ageless Insight in all kinds of different decks as well. Um, that that's kind of unusual for a core set. It, at least it it was five six years ago when they were very very mediocre. These days, core sets tend to be as powerful as just any regular set we would get, and. We're seeing it in those numbers. Okay, guys, we've gone through some of the sets that did experience an increase in popularity, but we don't have a full year's worth of data for them just yet. We do have a bunch of those sets still pending, but let's get to those in part two, because right now I think what we ought to do is um challenge some stats. This is one of our favorite segments here on the show. There's so much data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. You know, sometimes we think that cards see too much play or too little play. So before we finish out this topic about those sets that went up in popularity, let's take a break for challenging some stats. Matt, do you want to start us off this week? What's your challenge? So my challenge this week is our listener submitted challenge for the week. Um, this one's courtesy of Han shot first, which he did. Han Solo <laughs> did shoot first. Let's lay that to rest. But anyway, so HSF in our, our Discord um, found a category of overplayed cards, actually. So this is a, uh, a heavy he- a heavy hitter. Um, so mm. Elemental, Bond, and Garrick's Uprising are both being played in Zixar the Exemplary decks. Um, now, these are both enchantments that whenever a creature with power four, greater, or three or greater enters the battlefield, you draw a card. So Zixar the Exemplary is that Sultai Hydra commander that whenever you cast X spells, you create... Zero, zero Hydras with X plus one plus one counters on them. So these cards are all well and good. But the way that Zixara works is that the creatures enter the battlefield as a zero, zero, and then they get their plus one plus one counters oh. equal to whatever that X was on the X spell that you cast. So they enter as a zero, zero, then they get four plus one plus one counters. Now, the way that that works is they're not going to trigger either Garrick's Uprising or Elemental Bond because they enter as zero zeros, not mm-hmm. as a four four or three three. That means Elemental Bond and Garrick's Uprising are not going to be triggering as much as you might think in the typical Zixar the Exemplary decks. Uh, this is a really, really good example of cards that you look at them, you think that they're going to work, but the timing of everything makes it so that it's not. So Han shot first, your your username adds up and also your challenge of stats adds up. Um, these are just, it's just a really good catch of a category of cards that you don't want to be playing that I think every now and then we all could kind of reanalyze and make sure that we're playing the right interactions for the cards. That's so excellent. Thank you so much for that one, Han. All right, let's move to mine now. I am talking about a card, Cauldron of Souls, which I think is being underplayed for the commander Ayula, Queen Among Bears. That is the bear commander from Modern Horizons who can power up your bears with plus one plus one counters whenever your bears enter the battlefield. And you can choose whichever bears that you like, but the interaction here with the card Cauldron of Souls is something that really, really fascinates me. Cauldron of Souls is that five mana artifact that you can tap to give any number of target creatures persist until the end of turn. So persist will have those creatures, if they die, come back with a minus one minus one counter. Well, if you decide to use this on all of your bears in response to some type of wrath effect on the board, your bears will all come back and Ayula will be a 
able to give you a whole bunch of plus one counters after that. And when a plus one counter is put onto a creature that has that minus one persist counter on it, the minus one and the plus one counters annihilate each other. So you'll just get a bunch of plus one, plus one bears, and you can reactivate the Cauldron of Souls on another turn. So this is a great way to keep your entire army of bears around whenever you need them to, because you'll never have that minus one, minus one counter to contend with. This is kind of a sneaky pick. It's not showing up on a Eula's page at all, but I think it probably should be because Wrath Protection seems really, really good for this very creature-dependent commander. That is a really clever interaction. I would not, not have thought of that. So good call, Joey. Um, my pick here is a card that definitely isn't um, a challenge of stats a bull, I guess is the, the phrasing, in modern. But in commander, the card Scred should see more play. Oh, It's in 382 decks, and that's it. And for those that don't play modern, it's a one mana, uh, so a single red instant speed spell. Uh, Scred deals damage to target creature equal to the number of snow permanents you control. So you obviously don't want to run this in a deck without any snow permanents, but there's a whole lot of mono red decks that are running just all snow lands right now because number one, they're very cheap and they do have, you know, some effective interactions with things like extra planar lens or glacial crevices in, in mono red. And there's commanders like Svala Ice Shaper that we just got in Kaldheim that itself is a snow permanent and makes snow permanence. Um, and so you're in gruel colors there, or if we're talking about a mono red deck, we're looking at mono red colors that don't have necessarily great target creature removal. Um, this spell very often is going to be the equivalent of just casting a path to exile or something. It's going to kill whatever you hit, assuming your deck has a bunch of snow lands, or like like I mentioned with Svala, is making a bunch of those snow manoliths. Um, it definitely should be in more than 382 decks. Um, and if you're playing something with a bunch of snow, take a look at it because that's super, super efficient for targeted creature removal. That's such an unusual pick, Dana, but I've learned to expect nothing less from you. Why, thank you. I, yeah, that was a compliment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you have to specify. We weren't sure. We had to think about it for a second. <laughs> was that right, an insult? we're going... <laughs> Maybe, who knows? I'm, I'm, my lips are sealed. All right, let's go on. Moving back into our main topic. This time we're looking at those sets. Again, we're still in that category of the cards, the, the sets that did experience an increase of popularity over time. And this time we do have a full year's worth of data on them. So we'll go through a few more. Matt, tell us a little bit about how Commander 2020 is doing. Well, Commander 2020, as you all might remember, is the set that came out and there was there were some haymakers, whether it was the commanders like Kalamax the Storm Sire, where you're copying all sorts of spells, or it was the entire cycle of spells that you can cast for free, like Fierce Guardianship, as long mm -hmm. as you control your commander. There was a ton of just haymakers, quality cards all around. So it started out one month after release, only seeing play in about 20% of decks is where it worked its way in, but it did not stay there and it went up pretty dang quick. Yeah, after three months, we hit 27%, so increasing by 7% there. And then that kind of maintained itself up to, you know, one year later, they're showing up in about 30% of decks instead. I also kind of want to pause real quick here because Commander 2020, as a precon, had a whole bunch of reprints in it. And that meant that it had a huge popularity when we did our previous show, episode 153. Like it was showing up really, really big. But as it turns out, 
I think cards like Fierce Guardianship are just so ding-dang expensive that it is difficult to get them into those decks after all. So this is actually kind of low as sets go for like overall, you know, impact into actual sets, but it is nice to see that it is slowly rising. Hopefully that means that more people are able to get their hands on cards like those. I'm, I'm glad that we're going back to the ding-dang times. I, I am too, Matt. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, one thing I think we should note here, um, that the first month stats are, are about 20% for Commander 2020. Um, when you look back to Commander 2019, when we looked at those stats, 27% there. So significantly lower in this case for Commander 2020. However, this was the first time we had a Commander set released simultaneously with an actual regular standard set. Mm -hmm. So those decks came out at the same time people were buying standard cards for Akoria then, um, I'm wondering how much of that decreased number um, was a result of people having to make choices between what they were going to spend their money on, and they, they went with Akoria, and then later on, after three months, were able to then backfill and pick up some of that Commander product. This also was the, the first pre-con set, and it was fairly new into kind of the lockdown times, you know, at the beginning mm -hmm. of 2020. So it was really hard to really get anything because there were a lot of local game stores that were closed. Going out in public was very, very hard. So people hadn't really figured out how to play over webcams yet. So I think this might have been just a very, very low point for the amount of people that were playing Magic in general. So that, I think, is probably influencing the numbers more than just the fact that it was released at the same time. Because the pre-cons, those are always going to do well. You always have people excited about them. So I don't know how much impact it has, you know, being released at the same time or the fact that just it was not a very good time for Magic in general. Yeah, it is tough to pick those apart because actually coming up next, the next set that we have to talk about is Ikoria, which of course has, you know, those triomes, has those ultimatums, a whole bunch of those things. Like I really love Ruinous Ultimatum. That is actually, that's a, what a banger of a card. But Ikoria's numbers are also suppressed by I think the same things that you guys were just discussing there. After one month, when we're looking at just the original cards from Ikoria, we've got about 34% of cards from Ikoria showing up in decks that were built around that time. Um, and then after a couple another months, months, it does begin to pick up a little bit later. By the three-month mark, it had hit 45% instead. And then by one year, it was up to 49%. So it was eventually catching up. So maybe it was kind of a little bit of both of what you guys were saying. Like this set was competing against the pre-cons and the pre-cons were competing against this set. And hopefully maybe that's a way that we can see that people kind of eased into the new reality that was setting in at that time too. Well, and I also kind of wonder... I kind of pointed out earlier, but now it's really got me thinking how much of an effect does it have on any given cards or the sets where it's $3, $4 to get a pack of cards. Whereas with pre-con cards, most often, you know, if you buy your cards from Target and you don't have a local game store, you have to buy the entire pre-constructed deck, which can be $35, $40. How much does that, you know, downplay the fact that, you know, sometimes just commander, you know, commander pre-con cards aren't able to get in the hands of people because they can't just like buy a pack and that's all you need. Well, I think it's also worth touching on the fact that the, the cards we mentioned from this set as being the standouts, the triomes, things like Nethroy, things like the ultimatums, those are all three color cards. Yeah. Um, if a set is a two color set filled with, with variants on dual lands, a bunch of those cards can go in your three color deck. If all the cards or a bunch of the cards are three color cards or tri-lands in this case as well, those can't go in your two color deck. So I think there's also a lot less places these cards can go. And that's definitely going to cause a couple percentage point difference here. 
That is pretty important for us to recognize that because these sets, there's kind of a reason that we're starting them here. And it's because they do kind of have the, the lowest end of the bracket. The other sets that we'll talk about that experience increases got to bigger numbers than these two did. And part of that, as you mentioned, Dana, is probably a result of them being also three colors, although it is still kind of percentage based. So like there's a give and take on it. Overall, the output from Ikoria is like growing, but I'm not sure that it has much farther to go, if that makes sense. And uh, speaking of going on, let's just go right to our next one. We're talking about Core 2020, which gave us such as Golos and Golos and Golos. And don't forget the land that comes with Golos, Field of the Dead. Oh my God. Can I? Can I forget about it? Oh man. I, I love that card. Who am I kidding? Yeah. Um. You know, the first month of Core 2020, we saw 43% and then it just kind of steadily trickled up from there to, to 47 to finally cap out after one year at 54%. So over the course of a year, an 11% increase, just a slow and steady advancement in three-month intervals. Yeah, and, and this set was when they we first started to notice that Wizards of the Coast really started hitting it out of the park. And when it comes to just those core sets, there were good reprints, there were good original cards. Whereas before, you know, if you think back to, you know, core set 2015, it really didn't have the same feel even mm. that these core sets do now. Uh, I'm... I love the set. It gave us obviously one of the most popular commanders of all time in Golos Tireless Pilgrim. But then also there's just some very, very good just filler cards. You have Agent of Treachery, which we haven't even talked about yet. And that just that got banned out of standard as well. (laughs) Oh, no. When we talk about some of the before times, like, yeah, the standard situation. Oh, no. Oh, what an ordeal that's been. Oh, this set was crazy. Uh, moving through time now, we're going to go back to Theros Beyond Death. Theros Beyond Death has a pretty interesting one here, I would say. This, of course, if to get reacquainted with the set, we had such hits as Heliod, but also cards that went into decks were probably a little bit more impressive at the time. Things like Dryad of the Elysian Grove, for instance, or Nyx Bloom Ancient. Thassa's Oracle, of course, also comes from this set, too. Theros Beyond Death actually had a pretty deep decent start, I would say, right off the bat. Within the first month of its existence, 49% of decks being built at that time contained at least one card from Theros Beyond Death. And that did kind of gradually increase over time too. By the six-month point, it had uh, it had hit 55%, and by the one-year point, it had hit 57% within those hundreds of thousands of decks that had been built over that year. So kind of a, a nice gradual increase that we're seeing on this one. Yeah, that's just good, healthy, natural growth uh, and I actually would have thought these numbers were a lot lower. I think yeah. these, when you, if you would have asked me blind to to pick what numbers were lower, I would have picked Theros Beyond Death to be down where we're seeing Akoria numbers, just because this set was kind of forgotten about almost entirely by a lot of people. <laughs> but then you know, now yeah. that you look at the, the the top played cards, you have Heliod, which was very very good in a lot of different strategies. Dried of Elysian Grove. That card does so much work in so many decks. And then you also have like Thassa's Oracle, if that's the type of gameplay that you're into as well. Well, in, in this kind of perhaps is the opposite um, case of Akoria here, where this is a very heavily monocolored skewed deck. So mm-hmm. a lot of these cards go in a whole lot of decks in ways three color sets absolutely don't. So that probably kind of nudges these numbers up a little bit more because it's just so easy to put these cards into decks. Yeah, it seems like the cards that go into the 99 are pulling the bulk of the weight here because the commanders from this set did not have a lot of numbers behind them. So it definitely is the responsibility of the cards within the set that we're actually pushing the numbers that we're currently seeing. How about we now move to the set Modern Horizons? 
I have nothing but good things to say about this set. Dana, how are you feeling? It's been a decade since this came out, so it's kind of grown hazy in, the, in my memory. It's been so long. I'm looking forward to Modern Horizons 2, if that says anything. Um, but this is a set that, that, that started off basically on fire at 50% penetration into, into decks, and it just ramped up from there, including a significant jump in the first three months, going up to 57, and after a year, capped out at 64. So a 14% increase over the course of a single year. Love that. I love that. I love seeing that. That makes me happy. Urzas, Yawgmoths, Talismans, get in there. Well, and even if you weren't trying to play some of the higher end and more powerful cards like Urza, Lord High Artificer, you still had cards that were going to go into pretty much any two-color deck that, with the, the Talismans. That was just a great cycle. There's something that people have been asking for for a while. Um, you had the the Modern Horizon lands where you can uh, tap them for two oh, colors yeah. and take a damage, or you can pay one, tap them, and you sacrifice them to draw a card. Like we, we had more of that cycle. There's just a lot for just about anybody with whatever type of game you like to play in Commander. So... I'm not really surprised to see this um, because it was just such a very well-rounded set. Yeah, I oh, I just, mm, everything that you just said, Matt, makes me smile. Like this set makes my heart smile. <laughs> I really like it. I know that Hogak did bad things, but like I forgive Modern Horizons He didn't do bad that. things to our <laughs> format. He just did bad things to every other <laughs> format he was allowed to be in. True. Very, very true. Okay, we're nearly done with this section. Let's move quickly to War of the Spark. Matt, want to tell us all about it? Well, War of the Spark started off with a bang, and it's it's still banging, it's still clanging, it's, it's doing its thing. Um, so War of the Spark started out within a month after release at over 61% of deck inclusions. Ooh. That is a huge number that we're seeing. And it did nothing but go up. Um, it went from 61%, you know, in half a year, it went up to 69%. And then a year later, uh, we're seeing it in almost 73% of decks. So, like, it's just been healthy growth. People have just been seeing more cards and revisiting this and putting more and more cards into their decks. I, I Of the 208,000 decks that were built in the year after War of the Spark came out, 150,000 of them contain at least one War of the Spark card. That's so cool. Whether it's your Finale of Devastation or your Narset Planeswalker or your Narset's Reversal, this set just, it, I feel like it set a precedent. And for us to just finally focus in here on the original cards from a set without the reprints, it really lets us see how good War of the Spark was. Well, what I recall specifically from the spoiler season of War of the Spark was we got that deluge of Planeswalkers that all kinds of rarities and a bunch of like really good cards, like you mentioned Feather or Finale of Devastation. And at that point, it felt like the craziest, most packed set ever. And then they announced <laughs> the God Eternals, which is something that you skipped <laughs> over as well, talking about cards. Like the set was so deep yeah. that like those came as an afterthought at the end of spoiler week. And we just forgot to mention them right now until now here as well. This was such a deep set with so many cards for so many different decks that uh, these numbers aren't at all surprising. Well, and this this set came out of the gates being played in over 61% of decks. Mm -hmm. uh, just they found some sort of deck found at least a card from War of the Spark to put in there. That outclasses even Commander Legends. Commander Legends, as we talked about, at a month after release was at 59.5%. So this is the most popular set as far as original cards after, out, you know, coming out of the gate. That should be noted because we we were gushing about this set. Like you, we haven't even talked about cards that are just uncommons like Dovin's Veto that are just quality, great role players. 
Yeah, and, and people like generally have always kind of liked liked planeswalkers, or at least kind of liked the mystique of planeswalkers. And this was the set where you got a, you got a planeswalker. Like if you cracked a pack, yeah. you got one. You didn't have to hope you found a, myth, a mythic in in your pack, or you didn't have to go buy a single. You just got planeswalkers in every single pack, and people were able to then put the planeswalker into a deck if they wanted to. That that really attractive card type was readily available every time you opened a pack. Yeah, so, so much. But we're actually not done with this section yet. We have one more set to talk about in terms of growth, and this one really is the one that takes the cake. It's Throne of El Drain. Throne of El Drain started off at a good, but, you know, admittedly somewhat modest compared to the other stuff we just talked about, 55%, you know, of the 12,000 decks that were built within the first month, 7,000 of them contained a card from Throne of Eldraine. So, you know, 55% there. And then it got up, you know, after three months, it was at 59%. And then at six months, it was at 67%. At nine months, it hit 71%. And after one year, it had gone from 55% to 74% inclusion. That's insane. And I don't know, guys, say it with me. Which two mana artifact do we think was responsible for increasing the popularity of this set's deck inclusions over time? One, two, three, arcane signet. The elk. The elk. <laughs> the elk. Yeah, Oko turned into an elk. <laughs> and then he got banned, but it's still an elk. <laughs> oh, no. You, you know I'm right. Again, talking about like hitting every single beat you want to hit to make a set popular, you have absolute bombs in here like Turn of the Wild Speaker or the Great Henge. You have super powerful popular commanders like Corvald and Chulain. You have a staple that can go in every deck like Arcane Signet. Um, there's just something for everyone in this set. And it's also a little bit statistically an outlier because Throne of Eldraine also encompasses a handful of Brawl decks there. So mm -hmm. we have additional cards that are, are really good that aren't really found anywhere else because of those extra decks. Well, see here, I honestly think that Arcane Signet is the one that's pulling mm -hmm. a lot of this weight, especially the increases. As that card became more available by future sets finally reprinting it and making it available in something that is more than just a Brawl precon, eventually those numbers were able to go up. But I think that just like we saw in episode 153, where a single card like Arcane Signet can push up the popularity of something, I think that's kind of happening for Throne of Eldraine. Some of the cards that you just mentioned there, Return of the Wildspeaker, those are really awesome. But some of the cards, like the Great Henge, are just as expensive as the original cards from Jumpstart, and people just can't get their hands on them. Well, there was also a shortage of those Brawl decks early on. It took several months for them to be available for a lot of people as well. So some of that, th those numbers were probably artificially constrained by just people not being able to get a hold of the cards. Just, just finding the decks to start with, let alone being able to find a copy that Arcane Signet that was in heavy demand was pretty expensive early on. Well, it's interesting to point out too, you know, what we talked about with War of the Spark being played in the most amount of decks coming out of the gate. The decks, or excuse me, the set that ended up in the most amount of decks a year from release happens to be Throne of Eldraine. So we we saw a huge amount of growth from there, and it has the best finish of any sets. Now, we can say it's because of Arcane Signet doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Absolutely. But like we talked about, there are so many quality cards throughout the rest of the set. Uh, I don't think Arcane Signet's doing all of that. 
Maybe, maybe not all of it. I mean, like, let's be real. Fabled Passage is also in the set. Like, there's so much going yeah. on. I do think that the fact that it's, like, just a couple of points ahead of War of the Spark can be attributed to Arcane Signet for sure. So War of the Spark still steals my heart in that way. But Throne of Eldraine is still doing some impressive work, even if it wasn't for the Arcane Signet. There's still a lot that you can glean from it for sure there, too. Okay, so we've just finished up with the sets that had the biggest growth over time. And we've got one category left, fellas. These are the sets that reduced in popularity. Their popularity went down from whatever they started at. It went down. Dana, drum roll, please. Please tell us which sets went down in popularity over time. What do we got? None sets went down in popularity. <laughs> Zero, zilch, zippo, nada. Not a single one of them. A there big are, donut there- hole. Nothing. No, none of the sets reduced in popularity over time. We had a handful that stayed relatively the same, but none of them ever went from like 50% to 40% or from 30% down to 20. That just didn't happen. The closest I think we could say to fit in this category is like maybe Commander 2019 because it went from 27% to 25% after three months or so. But even then, after a year, it still went back to that 27% mark. So yeah, what do we think is going on there, guys? What does this tell us about how Commander is played? Matt, what does this mean to you when none of the sets went down in popularity after a year? I I think either people are never taking their decks apart or they're just, whenever they do take a deck apart, they just transition it and they keep a lot of the same cards in that rotation. You know, people buy cards because they want to play with cards. So if, you, if you're buying cards and you don't want to have them sitting around, chances are you're just building them or just putting in, building new decks and putting those old cards into them. Dana, how about you? What does this make you think of? So it makes you think of two things. First of all, um, prices do tend to drop over the course of a year. Obviously, there are exceptions. The Great Hands just went up the entire year. But like for your, you know, unexciting kind of mystic sanctuary level cards that you might want to put in your your blue deck just for some value, those kind of cards tend to go from, you know, that two or three dollar range down to that 75 cent range and are much, much easier to kind of on a whim plug into a deck. I think that kind of thing over a long period of time makes people put cards into decks versus take them out. So I think you're, you're seeing those numbers be offset of people that might pull things out are, are, are being more than made up for by people who are adding cards because they've gotten cheaper. Um, I think the second factor is not everyone updates their decks very quickly. So I think you are also seeing those numbers being offset. Sure, some people try something out so they don't like it and pull it back out and the numbers decrease, but I think there's also a large chunk of the casual kind of kitchen table population that just updates their deck on a whim. And over the course of a year, they finally get around to doing it. And that eventually pushes those numbers up. So you see more of that than you do see people removing cards as well. Matt Morgan is right there. You can just address him by name. Yeah, <laughs> well, we fixed Matt. He, he used to be flawed, and now we've we've made him better. We've improved I, I have become complete, as the yes, Phyrexians right, exactly, would say. Exactly. We have the technology. So, okay, so I look at a number like that, and two things come to my mind. Because people do take cards out of decks, but my guess is that our time window of one year is not really enough to really hit that point where people have – something has been – justifiably it can be removed like we i don't know when that mark would be but like 
the window does exist somewhere and one year was certainly not it. But the other thing that maybe makes me worry about a little bit is, is this also kind of an evidence of power creep situation where the new cards are so good that there's really no reason for them to ever go down because that's just how good they are because power creep, they're just better than the old cards. Is that something that worries you guys here when we look at these numbers about no sets ever reducing popularity or is that that not really as much a, a concern for you? Uh, these numbers that we're looking at specifically, this doesn't scream power creep to me. Uh, this is just more, I, I think people are kind of making making time to find what cards are worth going into because it's just such a crowded field these days, I think. That's probably <laughs> the biggest thing is there are so many new cards and all of them, they may not be more powerful. They may not be making things obsolete, but they're getting more focused and they're just, there's so much out there. So there, there's just so much competition within itself for other cards. So you might be playing something, you know, fairly specific for your commander and you're still going to have a ton of cards to choose from, even from the past few years. That makes sense. That makes I, sense. I, I do think I, I will disagree a little bit here. I do think power creep is a factor there. Um, when I think back to like, you know, four or five, six years ago, even thinking about the cards that would come out that I would add to a deck and for whatever reason, something like soul of Zendikar or the, that soul cycle, soul of Innistrad, I added a couple of those those soul cycle cards to decks back when they came out, um, and those were perfectly serviceable at the time. The equivalent of those kind of level cards now are much, much stronger. Um, I look at that soul of Innistrad that I put into a deck, and I'm like, I can see why I found something better for that deck. When I look at the Great Henge or Return of the Wildspeaker, I don't, I'm having a tough time envisioning what's going to make me want to remove them. So, so I do think there is an element of power creep. I think a lot of the things we're adding now compared to, let's say, five-ish years ago are much more likely to stick around. They don't feel like those things where you add them to the deck and then find something that might be slightly better down the road and, and make that swap. There are things you're putting into the deck and you're like, that's just going to be here forever, at least power-wise. And let's actually also pause and acknowledge the measuring stick that we use to accumulate all of this data as well. Remember, our deck inclusion rate was as long as there was at least one card, right? So what we're Mm -hmm. not seeing is potentially someone put five cards into a deck, but then removed four of them. That would still register as a hit for us. So one card would make an impact that would be sustainable. I feel like with so many of these sets still going up, it is more the case that people like found cards a little bit later on but we are not seeing if there were cards that were someone you know put three cards from a new set into a deck and then eventually those whittled away just down to one and that's something for us to acknowledge because i feel like i've had that type of experience plenty of times where i overshot and it was like ah, i want all these cards in the deck and i'm actually over time i'm only using like two of them instead of five and and to me if if we ever you know convinced our mr producer programmer man that gets these reports together for us if they did get a report that showed the the quantity of cards from each set going in into decks, that to me would kind of narrate what Dana's gathering from this for me personally. Um, just because just because one card's getting into a into a deck from a set, you know, a one is a one is a one. That's all that these numbers specifically are looking at. If we were seeing you know the same percentage of decks playing cards, but we were seeing you know five six cards from each set, then yes, that that to me certainly would be indicative of some some power creep issues going on. 
maybe a future episode that we can tease, quote-unquote. I don't know. That, it is surprisingly hard to get that type of report together, but we'll see what we can do. Maybe another future episode. There's one final point here that I do also kind of want to touch on before we are all done with this topic. And I just have found it interesting looking over all of those numbers that the biggest jumps tended to happen within like the first three to six months after a set was released. For example, Core 2020 went from 43% to 51% after the first six months. And then after six more months, it was just at 54%. Icoria was another. It went from 34% to 47% after the first six months, but then after six more, it was just from 47 to 49%. So I feel like this is a really good indicator to me. Like I find that really heartening. It seems as though like the first impression that Magic players are getting when we're evaluating a new card, like a Dockside Extortionist, like a whatever, our first impression appears to be the right one. Like that it is just like it all kind of happens up front and the change isn't too much later. Like whenever a surge in popularity happens, it is pretty early on. And then we're kind of right about the card evaluations that we've done from that point. That's what that feels like to me. And I think that's cool. Well, and, and I think another thing to kind of take away from this is people are getting a lot of that information you know, right off the bat, they're getting everything within the, the first three to six months. You know, people get excited for cards. They start drafting the sets. But after six months, you're getting a set or maybe two or three to follow up from the set that we're, we're analyzing. So I think that's why the numbers fall off, or at least the growth falls off after that six months, because there are just too many new products afterwards for people to want to revisit. There's There's too many new shiny things to take our attention away. And the creative capital is gone at that point. Yeah, if you're somebody who upgrades your deck slowly, if you're not in a huge hurry, you know you can look back after five months, like okay, I, it's time to update my update my decks. I haven't done so, you know, in, in several months. Two sets have came out, and you can go through and do that. If you're waiting a year and look, looking back to make those updates, like oh, eleven sets have came out. That's just a <laughs> lot to figure out. Yeah, so I, I do think that, that that's something as well. That's a lot of information to process. Yeah. yeah. 11 sets and 48,000 secret layers. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> All, oh. right. <laughs> All right, guys, this was a fascinating episode. I'm so glad that we got to do it. Thank you so much for joining me on it. And if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget Wednesday evenings, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. We are streaming paper games, the V-E-D-H, as it were. Uh, We have great guests that come on every single week that we have a ton of fun with. So make sure you tune in, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. And Professor, why did you assign so much homework? How about you? <laughs> you can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central, and I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. You can also find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at The Command Zone for handling the post-production work on our podcast. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors one more time too. They are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC to show your support for the show. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>